Welcome to the Latin Mass Society Iota Unum podcast series. Number one, Joseph Shaw in conversation with Matthew Ward. Could you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so, yes, I'm uh, Matthew Ward. I'm currently Director of Music at uh, Mayfield School in East Sussex, which is um, a Catholic girls' school of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus. Um, it's uh, about, probably about, it's nearly 150 years old, actually, in terms of its foundation. Um, and it has a, a long tradition of... Um, of music. Uh, in fact, we could say that the, the village itself has a, a very distinguished history in the sense that it, uh, in musical terms, in the sense that uh, Mayfield is the site of the medieval uh, Archbishops of Canterbury, their, their uh, pa um, palace, their summer palace. So it's kind of midway between Canterbury and London. It's a good stopping point. So there's a, uh, the school is actually in, in those grounds of the medieval palace. And uh, St. Dunstan is our Kind of local saint he's um uh celebrated it was apparently here in one of the versions of the legend that he caught the devil by the nose and uh, and flung him flung him away and uh and so st dunstan of course being a musical saint as well a composer as well as a as well as a great reformer of the monasteries uh etc so um i feel like i'm in a good spot musically uh i'm also uh, a kind of regional director of the Scola Gregoriana of Cambridge. Um, I recently founded a, a Scola here in Mayfield for interested singers as well, the Scola Cornelia, um, which is kind of uh, named for the foundress of the school, um, the venerable Cornelia Connolly, who's a very interesting character in herself. Um, and uh, as, well as, as well as doing that, I, uh, I run a local choir and I occasionally write articles for Catholic Herald, deliver talks like this one for about chant or, or things. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I, I, I kind of jack of all trades when it comes to music, really. And indeed, you also helped the Latin Mass Society with our weekend chant course um, last year. Yes. Which, that was yeah, that was, um, that was very kind of you. Um, indeed, that's, sadly the last of that series of events um so we need to we need to think of other other ways of of promoting chant um but we're going to talk today about the relationship between chant and prayer mm. so first of all what is what is this relationship in a in a nutshell well i mean it's i suppose in a nutshell the, the simplest way is to i was asked to talk about chant and prayer and the easiest way to answer that is by simply saying chant is prayer i mean i don't think there's much there's a much more nutshelly way of putting anything than that and um, the relationship is is perhaps even one to go as strong as to say is that one of identity um when done uh, when done properly i suppose is the caveat there um you know all chant has its origins in prayer historically um Practically all the words that are used in chant are prayer. There are no secular chants. If you, it's a it's a style of music which is um, purely and completely permeated by scripture and the prayer traditions of the church. Um, and so, to ask to kind of to put it another way around, if it would be, it's much harder to describe you know, a negative relationship of chant with prayer than it is to kind of describe a positive one. I, I, it, I was trying to think, can I find examples where chant isn't prayer? Um, and there may, I mean, I suppose liturgical drama might be an example of that, perhaps. But I think even there, you know, you can make an argument that, you know, things like uh, the Easter, the Easter plays that took place before the before Easter masses in the Middle Ages that were sung in chant, um, or you know, a, a kind of play of the of the sh of the shepherds or something at Christmas, maybe cross the line from prayer into kind of seasonal entertainments. Um, but very often they were sung by clerics within the church, or at least at the porch of the church, 
as a prelude to liturgy or an extension of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very hard to find chant that isn't prayer in its nature. Yes, that's 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 interesting. If I was challenged to do to to, to give come up with an example, I suppose I might think of the the lections in mass, the chanted okay. lections. But in fact, I think that that wouldn't really be right because they are intended as a uh, as a, as a as a piece of worship yes. offered to God. Um, so even though we might be listening to you know, narrative or, or you know the, even the, the the genealogy of our lord or something like that it's yes. it's it is a prayer which we offer to god um with the priest yes, offers I and think, the, yeah i i was uh, you know i was once we were discussing you know the uh, the endless question of the relationship between the ordinary form and the extraordinary form of the mass and latin versus english and things like that one of those conversations that animate the the country and um the I remember talking about, you know, well, maybe the ideal form of mass these days is, you know, you have your, you have your, um, most of the masses in Latin, but the readings in English, you know, maybe that's the way we square the circle or whatever. And it was pointed out to me, which uh, of course, I, which I had never thought myself actually, but it was, a, I thought it was a very, it was a very thought provoking thing was that the, the readings were not in fact for the benefit of the congregation, but were part of the, the you know the actual understanding of the readings you know you can read in your missal the translation or whatever but the they're an integral part of the prayer as you say of the mass of the offering to god of the mass the narration of his wonderful deeds you know we talk about telling of the wonderful deeds of god in the psalms um, and actually that's part of the praise of the mass is recalling salvation history um and having it sung in chant of course adds that extra level of um, yes adds the extra level to it so yes i think i was I'm now, I'm now very firmly in the everything should be in Latin camps, so, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then and then you have Sunday schools and you know and 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 the rest of it. You know, I just think I I've come I've come around to the idea that you know if you if you must if you want everything in English because it's easier to understand, it's just a sign of laziness really because you're not willing to put in the work to understand it outside of the mass. You know, but right. you know that's a conversation yeah. for another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you said reminds me of of a declaration in in. Sacrosanctum Concilium in Vatican II that the Mass is a single act of worship. Yes, to, towards God, it's, it 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 shouldn't be divided up into different things. But um, let me press you a little bit more, not on my own behalf, but on behalf of 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 our listeners, um, because most people don't think in terms of prayer uh, when they think about chant. Um, they say musical accompaniment of a liturgical text as a kind of decoration. Um, yeah. And sometimes I'll even see it as a distracting decoration mm. rather than something which is connected with or which enhances it as prayer, specifically as prayer. Mm. So um, to someone who said, well, what does chant add to prayer as prayer rather than what does it add to prayer as a kind of aesthetic kind of yeah. setting? Uh, what, what, how could you respond to that? Gosh, that's a that is the hard one. That's the thing that's I've been. That's the one that I've been uh, revolving around my head. You know, it's a. I suppose it's the question of why is it? Why is it? Why is why chant rather than anything else? But I think rather than go down the road of kind of comparing different genres and saying, well, you know, this or that. You know, again, you end up in the realm of aesthetics, don't you? Um, if you go that way. So, what is as prayer? Well, I think I think at root, one of the things that's really helpful when considering this question is as is find out finding out what prayer is first what the characteristics of prayer are so there's you know there are two ways i think of traditionally the church has divided prayer and one is into these three kind of models of prayer so kind of vocal prayer meditative prayer and contemplative prayer um and i think that's one helpful model, which is the one that I, I find, I think, most useful when talking about chant. The other model which you find in the uh, modern catechism is um, is the division into, I think it's a fourfold division of praise, uh, petition, uh, intercession 
um, and uh, I can't remember the last one. I think it is. I think it is contemplation or something some, uh, along something along those lines. Um, and so there, there's a kind of that one tends to be more to do with function. I think vocal, meditative, and contemplative is more to do with the types of prayer that you can, you know, the way prayer can be, um, rather than necessarily the words that are the content of the prayer. If that makes sense. Um, so I think we could take each one of those in turn and examine how chant relates to them. So I think for vocal prayer, um, so par excellence, I think the, the example of this would be the Psalms and the divine office. Um, and I think that here, this is, I mean, this is really where chant began as a way of, it's a, a chant is really a Psalm delivery system. <laughs> you know, or it's a, you know, it's a text, you know, it's in, 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 in psalmody, especially is a, is a, uh, a, a, sorry, is a psalm delivery system literally uh, and and so it's a that's how it that's how it grew that's how it emerged it's it's something which is inseparable from the psalms in the church's <laughs> history um really you know since the very earliest centuries of the church's um liturgical life um you know from the time that you begin to see monasticism the psalms are sung uh, and you know, and sung in a very you know increasingly uh, organised and codified way. But you know, I think one can generally be quite confident that if we took slices of history from the every century, nipped into a Benedictine monastery, you know, right back or any monastery, in fact, but even before Benedict, um, we would recognise what the monks were doing. When they were singing their psalmody, as most closely resembling what we call Gregorian chant or what we call chant, um, and and so I think one of the key features of of chant is is that, especially in relation to verbal prayer, is its unobtrusiveness in respect of the word of God. So the forms of prayer that we might the forms of chant like psalmody or whatever. Um, uh, and uh, simple antiphons, etc., are what Pius the Tenth and many others have described as um, chant as the handmaid of the word, um, and this idea that you know that we must pray the Psalms. The Psalms are the absolute bedrock of the church's prayer, um, daily the daily cycle of prayer, and. Nobody has yet found a better way of doing them than with chant. Um, they seem because they grew up because they grew up together in a way. I mean, some theories about the origins of chant even suggest that it can be traced into synagogue worship um, and and right back into the Old Testament um, in terms of its formulaicism, in terms of the way it articulates the text, in terms of possibly even in terms of the styles of, styles of singing. Um, but there we become, we get quite speculative and it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. But I would say, so the first form of prayer, this idea of um, psalmody, of a psalm delivery, of, of, of recitation, which applies to prayers as well as to kind of collects, etc., as well as to, and as you said, readings, as well as to um, psalmody. Uh, I think that's it's almost too too self-evident to unpick the relationship between that's probably a very unsatisfactory answer for you <laughs> um but uh but yes and and so then that relationship the other important thing which is stressed by um the magisterium often when talking about chant is this very very intimate relationship with the word of god um, that chant has um that it was nurtured by you know the musical style itself was born in those establishments monasteries um whose prime function was to generate prayer and praise of god um and the way they did this and chose to do this was in was was receiving refining and creating um the chant that had been kind of handed on so the layering of the the kind of layering of of centuries and centuries of of um psalmody just puts the two together in a way which is completely 
natural and and yes. right. Yes, um, I've got, I had in fact there was a there's a nice thing that is said by um, I think it's in Mediator Day uh, by I think that's Pius the Twelfth. Uh, sorry, um, yes, Pius the Twelfth, um, in which he uh, talks about the divine office, um, and uh, you know he talks about how he talks about the works of the monk, the work of the monks, and those who practice asceticism, the prayers of the church being in the course of time becoming ever more perfected and gradually incorporated into the into the sacred liturgy um and so it's that sense of the church's prayer and the church's music grew up together they're twins yes so to talk about meditation i don't know if that's I don't know if that's a useful answer. Yes, or, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and also, I think I think it's I think it's worth pointing out as well that there is a chant for every prayer, right? So, you know, the way that chant is 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 made, the way that it exists, is that you know you need to pray. There's a turn for it. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you come up with that. You come up with a new collect. There's a turn for it. You know. Um, you know, when you invent, you know, when you come up with a new mass, the church finds chance uh, uh, chance for it. There was an attempt to destabilize this um, with the new translation of the mass quite recently, which was not um, very well, which has not been co widely commented on as far as I'm aware. Um, I imagine you probably probably did. But um, you, uh, many people. Uh, I think have noticed that the, uh, a lot of the communion chants in the new translation into English, um, the, the traditional antiphons were completely replaced um, with newly selected verses from Scripture. Um, often, as a, yeah, but if, if you look, if you look in, so so as a as a choir director, once I got hold of the new missal and started looking at it, um, suddenly you discover verses of Scripture put in as an, as communion antiphons in in. You know, ordinary Sunday masses, or um, even some feast days, um, but less so in that uh, in that area, where there is no chant for them. Um, it's it, it's a very odd phenomenon, which seems that uh, so in in this case, but thankfully there are plenty, there have been people like Father Samuel uh, Weber in um, America, who's a fantastic uh, promoter of chant, who who very quickly took the new texts and set them to old chants. So. <laughs> You could still you could sing the, the the mandated texts with good music, right, right. So uh, the connection between chant and meditation, I think, was would be would be maybe the next place to go. I don't know. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, one thing that occurs to me uh, about any kind of religious art and a particularly devotional art is that it it serves as a inevitably it serves as a commentary on the subject matter mm. so if you think of a great devotional painting like a crucifixion and um, the way that it's portrayed uh, goes beyond obviously what the scripture says Mm. Um, it, it shows the emotions in a different way. Um, it, it draws your attention to particular aspects of the scene, um, and it, it strikes us with its with its own beauty as well as with the interest of the of the subject matter. Yes. Um, and that's that's a as I say, it's really it's a commentary on a spiritual commentary on this spiritual uh, mm. scene. Um, and if it's good art, of course, it'll be a good commentary. It'll be something which which adds something which is perhaps of particular importance um, for us in an age later than that in which scripture was written. Um, it, 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 it adds to the beauty, it adds to our, our devotion. Um, and of course, chant will do this as well. So, yes. you know, you're singing a, a, a piece of scripture to chant, for example, the chant will accentuate some aspects of it. It'll draw our attention to some aspects of it. And unlike other kinds of religious art, the chant is a creation of the church. 
So we don't have to worry too much about whether the chance leading us astray, which are kind of, you might think, oh gosh, some of these Baroque painters, you know, getting a bit ahead of themselves in, in kind of squeezing the sentimentality out of this yes. touching scene. Well, that might be a problem, but it's not a problem with chance, certainly not with the kind of, you know, the great chant repertoire of, of, of you know, the ages of faith. Um, it's, um, it, it tells us something which the church wants us to know. It guides us in our devotion. Yes. Although I think we always have to be careful to be aware of the historical nature of chant as well. And, and that, you know, we can say, yes, the church wants us, might want us to, to do, to, to know something, but it's, it's almost never a centralized, the centralized idea of the church. Oh no. Um, that we have in terms, and as you say, the ages of faith, each age of faith gave its own, made its own contribution to that tradition. Yes. And I think, you know, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about the, studying the chant of the Middle Ages is how, you know, devotions to local saints or particular uh, charisms of particular orders um, affect the, the kind of deposit of chant as it gets passed down as well. And, um, you know, we as but as you say that there's a and even styles change, of course, as well. Um, from one generation to the next. I think taking the example of painting there, it's, it's an interesting one because, of course, what you're talking about is there is individual artists reflecting. You know, they may be very orthodox um, and the rest of it and fully in communion with the church and, you know, even saintly, um, although I'm not sure in the Baroque that applies tremendously often. But, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, uh, but when we're talking about, you know, chant as art, we are often talking about we're talking about it in a very different way just like when we compare any medieval art like a cathedral you know if we compare you know the the the, the cathedral in barcelona as a work of one man really the vision of one man an exalted vision but a vision of, of an individual compared to the cathedrals of the of the gothic era or before where we're dealing with a community and a local church etc um, you're dealing with a, a, a different idea of what art is and is for. And the same thing goes for chant. Um, you know, there are very few cases in which we can actually pinpoint an artist behind a chant. Obviously, we've got, you have examples like Hildegard of Bingen, you know, and in fact, the more you dig, there are more, you know, you find more and more. And I mentioned St. Dunstan earlier, um, of course. I mean, the chances that he wrote his career are small, but, you know, it was assigned. it was assigned to him you know, and it was felt to be a value that he should have a chant ascribed to him. Um, so I think, and you know, and of course, the more you study these things, the more you spot these layers. But I think absolutely, we could talk about chants as providing something, providing another perspective, and the perspective of a tradition um, in the, uh, within the church uh, on the the mysteries, whether they're whether it's a hymn or a, a a sequence or a, um, or as, it, as you say a portion of scripture in the mass or, or, or an antiphon um, and so and so this takes us yeah as you say into meditation um, and the idea of and I think there's a linking there's a little linking here between psalmody and these more individual chants let's say um, one of the kind of lovely etymologies that are that I really enjoy um, uh, is the idea of uh, ruminating on something, um, being to chew it over, a kind of physical act of, you know, that what cows do, you know, they, they chew the cud, they ruminate. We call them ruminants. Um, yes. And, you know, you look at a cow and its mouth is going when it's ruminating in the grass. Um, and uh, this is something, this is a, a really nice image, I think, and it's, it's used in the Middle Ages to some, to some degree. Uh, I'm taking this uh, straight from uh, Mary Carruthers in the book of the book of memory here, but she talks about this idea that monks, you know, that the, the people very rarely read without without moving their lips or without moving their jaw, uh, and you know the discussion, the idea of we often find that discussion in scripture, but also in the Middle Ages of the word of God being sweet to to the taste in the mouth, as well, um, yes. that you're chewing over the word of God and you're actually tasting it as well as a kind of almost synesthesia going on um, and I think psalmody can psalmody can do that in a way psalmody can be a chewing over of the texts and with repetition on 
year by year, which I think is something we'll talk about potentially later. You know, the the the, the meditation, the music helps you to soak that in, um, and and certainly that then transfers into the melodies um, as well. Um, and I think melodies, the melodies of chant, which are often quite memorable for particular occasions, particular texts, especially if they're linked to a you know a unique melody with a unique text for a, an important feast day. These melodies can act as memorative hooks as well. They can act as ways of you, of of you recalling, um, yes. recalling a text to mind. You know, I find it very hard to believe that that monastics and scholars in the Middle Ages who were soaked in chant year by year and the same chants year after year didn't read the scriptures and and the chants didn't pop off pop off the page into their mind oh, yes. as they read passages um, and so this kind of symbiotic relationship between the, the words of scripture and the melodies that 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 are kind of embodied those or meditated upon those words in the context of the liturgy um, is something hugely important um, and I think we underestimate we underestimate that and you know the, the chants can also interact with each other as well you know chants that have the same melody so often um, you know there are families of chant melodies particular genres have this more than others um, the graduals for example but even you know there are turns of phrase which sometimes recall and I've sung chant I used to sing it more regularly uh, unfortunately than I do now in a liturgical setting and even after three or four years of doing that regularly you start to notice the same ones coming back but you also start to notice cross almost cross references within the corpus um, and you know one phrase recalls another phrase from another chant and you know that not is not necessarily of course designed um, there have been arguments made that you know the uh, that Gregorian chant was designed as a as a a single body of work in the seventh um seventh century late seventh century early eighth century in rome as a kind of project um it seems unlikely that that was that was the case uh, the evidence is not tremendously strong for it um and it's much more likely that it developed over many centuries um but um you know those connections again don't need to be intended um to be useful meditatively i think yes because and indeed they all develop under the hand of providence under the hand of providence off you know the inspiration of the holy spirit if you believe the medievals of course looking at you know images of gregory the great with his with the holy spirit sitting on his ear singing <laughs> gregorian chant into his ear and then he's singing it to his scribe who's dictating who's writing down rapidly the tunes that uh, gregory um <laughs> is hearing um yes interestingly the, the history of that image is, is is a fascinating one it it originates from actually from a the first i think the first time it appears is is in um this or the story appears is in a description of his commentary on ezekiel so it actually starts out being nothing to do with chant but then someone made the connection at some point that this was to i think articulate the um the insight that you have just said which is that you know there is a divine there's divine providence behind this you know there is there is an origin whether that origin is in time and in a specific human person is is one thing um is it a way of expressing perhaps the truth that this is under the under under the guiding hand of of god um and is therefore of use you know and is of, of is beneficial to us yes yes well the, it, it, like so much medieval art and indeed architecture uh, the chant has as you say mostly anonymous and the anonymity of the chant the disappearance of the human authors is actually adds to its sense of 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 givenness yes to us, um the sense that it's it's this is something which has grown up organically and this brings me to uh, uh, uh my next question which is that um, many people um, in the church, uh, and even more so outside the Catholic Church, the Catholic tradition, um, will tell us that the best form of prayer, the most authentic form of prayer, is something which is 
which comes from us spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Now, the chant obviously is above all the singing of a set text, a text mm-hmm. which is which is given. Yeah. Um, so, what do you say with someone who says, "Well, I, I don't want to sing or pray a set text. I want to just respond to the spirit." Yeah. First, first thing I might I might say is. Um, well, I mean, I suppose there are two things, aren't there? Which is, uh, one is I might I might want to pray spontaneously, um, as in, say, the charismatic renewal or or, or whatever. Um, in which case, I mean, it's very interesting that no, that the, the that when this happens, um, perhaps people don't they tend to spontaneously create things which are very much of the present day and of a sp- of particular with stylistic constraints you know um you might you wouldn't necessarily find someone suddenly spontaneously praying in the spirit and style of bach you know. <laughs> but uh, you know I I, <laughs> I I i just find that 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 uh well that's that's another discussion but um i think that, but there is another aspect i think which which is more interesting which is the you know the the kind of for him sandwich or you know we want to sing the hymns that we we know or the hymns that make me feel good or 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 whatever and i, I mean the first, my first response to somebody who makes that point is you know try being a choir director for three years <laughs> uh, you know um the, the you know the work involved in finding you know if you're a conscientious choir director that is you know the, the agony of choosing hymns you know the the constant juggling of familiarity with unfamiliarity and you know finding quality and introducing new things and and trying to marry the 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 choice of hymns with the readings for the week or or whatever or the season you know and all the while being aware that you're supposed to be keeping the the uh, the audience yeah i said audience there the um, keeping the congregation you know engaged and interested and uplifted and the rest of it you know it's a it's a tough job mm. and you know we have a book called the, the graduale where it's been done for us so my first point is you know my first response to that is try being a choir director and then tell me that you were that you're not grateful to have antiphons and things on all this work thought out and i think actually often it comes from a misunderstanding of the of of the of the role of singing in in the church, you know, there's a decoupling of the moments of of song um, from the from the liturgical action, um, and often and you know, I, I assume, of course, in this case, you're talking about you know the ordinary form because I I've never come across anybody who wants to do s- spontaneous um, no sing- <laughs> singing. Well, it's in a general LMS objection or, to the whole. To, is it, you might you can think of it as, as an objection to the liturgical tradition, uh, particularly the ordinary, the, the extraordinary form. Oh, I see as an objection to the tradition as a whole. I mean, of course, we are talking. I mean, uh, my mind runs on the mass quite n- normally and naturally. I mean, we could talk about prayer in general, and you know, and at home, you know, or in a, in a kind of prayer group, you know, you don't you, do you go to chant or whatever. But I think you're opening a can of worms there, talking about what you should be doing in a in a in your kind of your your living room with a few friends from the parish you know and sh- there you know should you be singing from you know uh, devotional books of devotional chant or you know is that more of the kind of place where this spontaneity can happen those are larger questions but if you were to say what is the you know what why do we have to sing this i suppose the question could be framed as why do we have to sing the same things every year for you know for or all the same things every every mass say the same gloria or the same you know if you stick to you know the uh, missa de angelis during easter tide or whatever why can't we have a range of different hymn different things or uh, different uh, musical why not why not variety why not spontaneity or or whatever um but i think it's it all it's this is a question that benedict the 16th has them um, looked at in great detail and i think he's it's a it's a great theme in his work in the moral realm actually um uh, not just not just necessarily morality actually but also in terms of the idea of truth um and modern anthropology he's a he's he's one of the great themes that runs through his work is the idea of as you say givenness um 
uh, and who who is the who is the origin of of things, right? <laughs> who creates and who who is created, or you know, what role do we have in that creation? Um, and you know this, and also I think there's a, there's also an aspect in here of of an anthropology which denies fallenness and the need for perfect for perfect for being perfected by an external agency. Um, so right. just to unpack that a little bit, one of the things that I think that that Benedict XVI observes about modernity is the idea that you know you can be whatever you want to be. You create yourself from nothing from a kind of tabula rasa um and you know anything from the outside that is suggested to you either by culture by religion um by parents or whatever um you are free to choose or reject as you like and this is a good thing and in fact the more individual you can make yourself and the more different from the world from everything around you the more that you can actually then change the world in your own image the better and this is one of the central creeds of modern kind of relativistic individualism yes. which yes. he which he diagnoses i think better than you know many have and better than anyone possibly um and he's you know then put as contrary to this he's pointed out of course that we are you know made in the image and likeness of god but we mess that up and our job is to is not in fact to create ourselves but to allow ourselves to be re-sculpted uh, by divine grace um, and by the truth, um, and and so you know, the kind of attitude that come that is, you know, I don't have in fact all the answers. And my image of myself and you know my desires and and everything, which may come from God or may not, need to be discerned. You know, in the light of the magisterium, the teaching of the church, and you know, and the word of God, uh, and the whole apparatus of the liturgy and the church's year and um, the church's teaching is designed to draw our gaze away from ourselves and towards God and, yes. and that light we then become we are then transformed into what he uh, wants us to be and not in fact which doesn't necessarily align with what we think we want to be um, instead and I think this analysis that he has is of course vital today in you know politics and everything i mean we see it's the whole thing is exploding around us on precise along precisely these these lines in many in many ways yes uh, yes uh but this of course then applies to the liturgy as well um i mentioned that the liturgy is one of these as it were engines for well you could say it's an engine for saint creation right i've talked about psalm delivery that's the psalm delivery system I mean, all these all these <laughs> mechanistic industrial um analogies but you know that in a sense that's what the liturgy is it's you know it's a way of creating saints um and and the way you do that is by going out of your the way you become a saint is by going out from yourself um and you know handing yourself over to god handing yourself to the church um and i think i think it's an interesting thing and you know psychologists would probably have a field day with talking about you know the idea of you know the person who prefers to be submitted to authority and those who are who resist authority and the rest of it um but you know i think that this is something that we have to understand we we've we don't know best and we've got it's there's an arrogance to that sense of actually you know i can spontaneously come up with something which works better for my soul than um the thing which is given to me by the church who has been doing this for two millennia. Yes, yes. I, one of the things in my mind is, is reading a, a book by my, by my grandfather, my mother's father, who, who um, was a Catholic convert at the end of his life. But he'd been brought up in a, in a, in a kind of free church type of uh, situation. His father was a, was a minister who used to come out with these extempore prayers and he said that and he describes this and says that I mean, he basically ran screaming for the place into the arms of the Anglican church which for him was a kind of you know hugely you know moved towards <laughs> towards the formality and, and, and everything and i can imagine what what they would say that that you know apart from that oh he's gone he's going all popish well you're you're abandoning the you know the authentic 
spirit uh, mm-hmm. and everything. And it, it seems a, a paradox that in a you know in that kind of low church situation, you you they could be resisting the idea of a of a tradition handed on of texts and songs and everything <laughs> yeah. when they have the Bible. You know, yeah, it's all about the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a text. Yes. It's fixed, completely fixed. Um, or at least it should be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet they, they can't bear to have anything else. Um, so well, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a curious thing. Um, so, I, yeah, it is, absolutely. And I, one of the things that a very wise priest once said to me, I remember when I was younger um, and um, I was talking about, you know, the, it was about the office, in fact, um, and I was, you know, I was in one of my periodic fits of trying to pray the office, um, you know, even minimally. Um, and, and I remember saying to him, look, I, I, I just, I can't do Compline, I said, because like every Friday, it's so miserable. <laughs> I don't, you know, I just don't, you know, some Fridays, I'm in a pretty good mood. I don't want to, I don't want to recite that's the passion psalms you know and i didn't put it quite that way but i was like you know why do i have to why do we have to do the same thing over and over again and i think it's also the, the same problem you can have with say i mean if you're doing the the revised the modern the modern office of course um you know for every feast day you've got the um you know and every and, and you know every other sunday you've got the canticle of the children in daniel um you know which is pretty repetitive um, to say the least, you know, and and actually, you know, it can get well again in one of my periodic fits of pr- trying to say the office. You know, I was finding this really tough going. You know, I like feast days, so I get to a new feast day and I'm like, yes, fantastic! I can celebrate this this, this saint. And then I'm ah, oh, but I've got to say the canticle of the children again. <laughs> can I just try another psalm? You know, and anyway, so I expressed this to 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 the to the, the my spiritual director, and he said, well, he said you're missing the point. He said, the Psalms are not your prayers. The Psalms are the prayer of the church. And you, firstly, you can be, you might not know that you need to pray that, you know, at this particular point. So it's given to you to pray because the church knows that it's the prayer that we should be praying today. Um, or the church recommends that it's the prayer that we're praying today. But also that, you know, you, there is somebody else in the world, in the church militant or in the church suffering who needs that prayer at this time and so you're offering that prayer not for yourself and your own spontaneous feelings although of course you you should and in fact the difficulty with doing that is itself a prayer you might say um but you're offering it with and and through the church for those people who are maybe not praying or who need the prayer um and then our lord will do with that prayer what he can and what he what he what he wills um, and I think the danger of the, spon- of the spontaneous approach and the danger of sticking to the same few hymns and, the, and your favourite um, and your favourite uh, mass setting and the rest of it mm-hmm. is that you you create these local pockets of sentiment and um, preference, uh, which limits the range of the possible prayer for you. Yes. yes. You know, and 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 the church gives us these set texts and set set music seasonally and um you know and daily in order to draw us in the you know the phrase of aslan you know for uh, higher up and further in yes you know uh, another priest um i remember talk told me talked to me about the, the liturgical year uh, not as a cycle but as a, a, sp- a spiral or a corkscrew oh, and yes. every, every time you go around it you go further up ideally you know and it's never the same twice and of course once you have children you discover this you know actually once you know i think certainly that you you find that every year there's something new that they're finding in the churches that you can bring out the treasures old and and new as it were but also that um uh and when it comes back to the canticle of the of the um of the children in the in the fire um the daniel canticle you know, actually, that's one of the most fun things to sing with my children. <laughs> yes, because they love <laughs> repetition. You know, the 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 repeated, the repetitious nature of chant, um, and doing it over and over again, is a is actually a childlike gesture 
and it can put us into the position of children. You know, and our Lord tells us that we should become like children. And that sense of, I think, that sensibility of, okay, you know, you're in charge. I'm not in charge. Which children on their good days have <laughs> is, um, <laughs> is, is, a, is something that, that chant inculcates and fosters and helps to blossom. Yes. And year by year, you, you, be, you grow into the church through her songs and they become yes. part of your you become part of your repertoire part of your life you know and uh, you know like like smells that bring back memories or or, or whatever chants can do the same thing um yes one thing that's very comforting about being a like me an amateur chant singer is that as the years pass you inevitably become more familiar with the repertoire. Yes. <laughs> so um, you may not think you're a much better singer, but you know it better. It's easier. It's easier to sing it the, the, the 20th time. Yes. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, it's nice. But um, well, the church also gives us, I mean, the church in her wisdom, of course, you know, gives us types of chant for types of, for different times as well, you know, for different functions. You know, they work... I mean, I'm thinking of the Alleluia, for example, uh, um, you know, and the Gregorian Alleluia, which maybe leads us into thinking about contemplative prayer uh, through chant as well, um, which is something I would like to, to, to talk about. But, you know, bur getting rid of the Alleluia, we bury the Alleluia in our family. It was started a couple of years ago, um, this, this ancient tradition of, you know, at the beginning on Ash Wednesday or the, the Sunday before Lent, um, you know, taking the word Alleluia. I wrote out the opening of the Easter Alleluia um confitemini domino and we put that in a jar and bury it in the garden you know and then <laughs> unfortunately the unfortunately the celtic hallelujah was is my little boy's was my little boy's favorite song for a while um and it it just hit peak popularity at the beginning of lent this year so, <laughs> um, so while we buried the hallelujah we then had most of lent the hallelujah which was <laughs> quite difficult but you know He's two, so I, it, it didn't feel quite right to stop him marching around pretending to be a priest singing hallelujah. Um, but, you know, he'll learn that eventually. And, you know, my five-year-old understands it, you know, and was really excited about singing the hallelujah again. Um, you know, so the seasonality of chant is a really, you know, I think a really crucial part of it as well. Yes, yes. Well, you've you've mentioned a few times now that the, the chant and and children, and I, I'm sure it, it will amaze some people. Perhaps not the not the um, most likely people to be listening to this podcast, but it will certainly <laughs> amaze some people to hear that chant is works with children. That children are able to learn it, that they enjoy singing it, um, and that's obviously your experience. It's, it's my experience as well. That they, you know, they 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 uh, they, they can master it, and and um, they get a lot out of it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, my as I say, my, my um, I had a little experience of that with 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 my wife's family actually. You know, who, you know, couldn't believe that, you know, they I remember they were complaining. Uh, some some members of the family were complaining about um, they had a new priest in the parish who wanted to teach the children the Regina Chaley, and they were saying the children can't learn this. So we kind of brought Rose over, <laughs> put her in front of her, and, <laughs> and they sang sang the Regina Chaley. You know, <laughs> it was like you know. There you go. Um, but, you know, and not just the Regina Chirley, you know, she could sing the Salva Regina. And, you know, we give her the option at prayers. What do you, how would you like to sing to Mary this evening? You know, and more often than not, she chooses the Salva Regina over something like Immaculate Mary, for example, which is much simpler. Um, you know, the, the, you could do anything with children. You could teach them, you know, very complicated things because they'd love repetition. So you just have to repeat it often enough um, and it goes in. You know, and they'd, obviously they don't understand the words, but you can. Ex but as with the Latin Mass, you can explain it beforehand, afterwards. You know, stop phrase by phrase if you need to. You know, when they're learning it, and 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 of course they will then, they will learn it eventually, when they're you know with the Hail Holy Queen, they'll eventually make that connection, and the light bulb will go on, and it will be, it'll be there. But the the yeah, there's no difficulty with teaching them at all. Um, in my experience but then i am a music teacher 
<laughs> well, you're not, so <laughs> no, I'm far, far from it. No, indeed. Um, but um, you know, we've been we've been singing uh, recently um, the um, Salve Marta Misericordiae, for example, and they 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 love it. Yeah, so love well, it. I, ha- I haven't moved on to that one yet. <laughs> It's it's yeah well it's it's and and I and they they all know all the um uh the solemn tones of the uh, the four um Marian anthems. Right. Um, well, you're in advance of me, but you're in advance <laughs> of me in terms of numbers and age as well. I believe. Yes, that's right. My eldest is is is, uh, is sixteen, so okay, I, <laughs> I've been banging on this drum for quite a long time. But it's it's obviously well, you, you can get this bring drums right. into it, do you? Do you me? <laughs> But it's it's the fact that they enjoy it. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, children don't pretend to no. things, you know, not small children. It's it's no, they let you know very quickly. Yeah, yeah they do. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> um, uh, which is definitely what we found with um with remote masses, I'm afraid, this uh, during lockdown. But there you go. Although to be fair, you know, we've been tuning into the the uh, Birmingham Oratory. Um and the, you know, for a number of weeks. You know, they were very excited to hear an organ again at Easter and to have the, um, you know, to have to, to kind of, they recognise the Missa de Angelis and the rest of it. But uh, it is quite difficult to keep them focused when they're in a room full of their toys and books and, and things, you know, it's just very hard to make that work. But, uh, you know, as I said, two and five. <laughs> so. it, it has been, it has been tough for, for everyone. Nice. But we have, I mean, even there, we have sometimes turned down you know, turned down the volume to join in to sing the chants together, you know, uh, and the rest of it. And actually ha- using chant in the domestic church, you know, is a fantastic catechetical tool and um, and all these, you know, and, and, and just keeping, you know, bringing that into the into the home um, has yeah. been really, really good. Um, so, I mean, actually, I had, I had one of the best Easter vigils I've ever had this year because, I, you know, it's the first time I, with free from the interference of priests, I've been able, I, I was allowed, <laughs> I, was, um, I was able to sing all of the, all of the tracts, you know, and all of the, uh, the exultet and, you know, the Alleluia and, you know, it was fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, there were d- other downsides to it, but, um, but you know, when it came to music, it was, it, was, it was the first time I've ever done all the tracts and it was lovely. <laughs> Yes. yes. Um, well, it's the first time I dragged all my children to all the all the all the services, <laughs> <laughs> all bit all bit on a projected onto a screen. Yeah. Um, but before we end, you wanted to say something more about the contemplative nature of the uh, yes. of the chant. So we we've covered ver- verbal prayer, I think, pretty vocal prayer, pretty thoroughly, and and meditative prayer uh, a bit. Um, but yeah, I think the contemplative aspect is, is, I think, really, really quite important when it comes to chant. And I think it's something that is, it's not really thought about too much in, 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 in music, in church music. Uh, and I think by, cont- I, I think maybe the closest people get with modern church music is to this might be something like um, Teze. Something as repet, something kind of mind-numbing and repetitive, like Teze. Yeah. Um, that you know, where it becomes so kind of, you know, almost like a an Eastern mantra that you can then flirt free of or whatever in contemplation, um, or whatever. And you know, I think Teze has its place. Um, but you know, that I think that's the closest people get. But there are one of the things that we you don't find in modern church music in hymns for example or in um there are one or two exceptions but in hymns and um uh kind of settings of of mass mass settings and things uh is 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 use of melisma so that the long right long lines of music setting just a single vowel sound like in a long Kyrie, Kyrie, something like that, a long, a long A sound, mm. um, or in the Alleluia, especially the Gregorian Alleluia repertoire, um, and that just doesn't happen. I mean, if you think about the modern Alleluias that you hear in the ordinary form, or perhaps most of your listeners don't hear, but <laughs> may at one time have heard in the ordinary form, most of them, of course, resemble, and in fact, the kind of default Alleluia is, of course, the 
the one from the Easter Vigil, the um, Alleluia, 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 which is in fact a communion chant um, in the Easter Vigil and is, is not a, or an antiphon really. Um, it's, it's not an Alleluia proper. Oh gosh, you're, of course that's why it's like that. Yes. So the threefold niche, <laughs> so, and it's not melismatic. You know, and in fact, most modern Alleluia's are just re repetitions of the word Alleluia with very little else going on. That they don't have this musical quality. Now, one of the the most important features of the Alleluia in in the Middle Ages um, and in chant is its melisma, is its long R at the end. You know, you get rid of the words, the syllables, pretty quickly, and then you just do a long, kind of rhapsodic R sound. And this is often the, you know, even even amongst, um, uh, you know, aficionados of, of the um, the old rite or of a Latin mass. This can be a place where people can get a little impatient, especially if there's no elaborate insensation going on. I, I think sometimes I don't know, maybe it's a self consciousness as a singer, but sometimes I think, especially and actually when they're not done very well, it could be a point of impatience for the for for, for a congregant. Um, I can sometimes see people shifting a bit, priests sometimes looking a bit. You know, <laughs> where is it going? When can I get started? Kind of thing. But um, there's a very important theological thing going on, a very important prayer thing going on, um, which is this idea of um, of going beyond words. Um, and it's something that polyphony does really well, actually. Renaissance polyphony is go beyond words to something else, to this kind of idea of the music of the spheres or whatever. Um, but in chant, there's something else. Uh, sorry, in an Alleluia, there's something else going on here. And there's a there's a fantastic passage I'd like to quote from uh, Amalar of Metz, who's a who was a commentator, um, and I think a kind of Carolingian commentator. Um, and he says that the so actually this is an interesting one because it's you as you'll hear it, it goes back to this idea of spontaneity. He says the Alleluia verse touches the cantor inwardly, so that he considers in what way he ought to praise the Lord or in what to rejoice. This jubilation or jubilatio which the cantors call the sequencia, which is the bit following along at melisma following the Alleluia, uh, brings that condition to our mind when the speaking of words will not be necessary, but by thought alone, mind will show to mind what it holds within it. In other words, the, what heaven will be like, how we will communicate in heaven, yes. beyond words, in pure jubilation. Um, and you know, he, he and other commentators in the in the middle ages saw this um this melisma at the end of the alleluia this long wordless r as you know one of the highest points of the mu musical points in the mass um a point where our prayer takes flight and goes beyond the present realm you know it's the point where we where where that veil becomes thin thin just like at the sanctus when we have the singing with the angels and the saints and then we launch into the the uh, sanctus 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 yes um this is another point like that where we where ideally chant is showing us something else it's showing us pure joy or pure um kind of wordless adoration uh, and it gives us a glimpse of heaven and of course it's no accident that it happens just before the gospel you know um yes. the advent of christ you know um and you know, in the Middle Ages, they took this to extremes. So it talks about the sequencia here. Now, the Alleluia that we are used to in the, you know, a kind of a, an Alleluia melisma might go on for, a long one might go on for 30 seconds, maybe. You know, a very long one. If it's, and maybe, unless it's sung slowly. I mean, if it's sung slowly, it could feel like it goes on for 30 days. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, that they're, they're actually quite short. And there's there's a whole repertoire so sequences which follow, of course, often follow the Alleluia. Um, early sequences um, from the kind of ninth and tenth centuries um, were actually extensions of that melisma. So they didn't have words. The sequence initially didn't have words. It was a, a an even longer melisma um, that went on for um, sometimes like an entire manuscript page. Um, maybe kind of two three minutes just on the on the syllable r um and and then 
there's what happens is people start to take these tunes and put words on them, and that's where we get the repertoire of sequences from. Gosh, that's how interesting. Nice. No that's idea. quite a simple. That's quite a simpler way of, of of describing it. Of course, then of course later on people started composing the tunes and the texts at the same time and 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 whatnot. But there's this. There's definitely a phenomenon at at, at one point of people getting of singers getting carried away at the Alleluia and doing a long, long R, elaborate virtuosic R sound, um, which is intended to carry us beyond the here and now into an experience of transcendence and and looking beyond so i think i think chant also has the the, the way, a way of doing that um there's a there's one a good example of that in well there's several good examples of that outside of um outside of uh the hallelujah um my one of my absolute favorite chants is the offertory um uh, jubilate deo um which is uh, there are two of them actually, but there's Jubilate Deo uh, Universa Terra as opposed to um, uh, Omnis Terra. And this one, in, in a sense, kind of shows us that um, with the use of repetition. I think you'll know the one I mean, of course, this amazing long melisma, um, which begins with the uh, the Jubilate, the Jubilate Deo. And then when it repeats the word jubilate, we get the following. And so... You can see a kind of a, a musical embodiment there of the joy, um, yes. and of uh, of the kind of this is what Amalar is talking about. In this case, however, I would argue that it's less it's less contemplative than the Alleluia because part of the joy, the the lovely thing about Alleluia is that it's a word that that, that for all intents and purposes, um, the Middle Ages treats as untranslatable, right? That it's not it's it's yes. uh, it's it's not in fact. A carrier of of meaning it's a, a shout of inexpressible delight and joy in god and praise of god yeah um, which is why i mean it's been objected you know and said why do we why why in the in the in the ordinary form do we change from singing alleluia to singing praise and honor to you lord jesus in lent when it means the same thing which of course misses entirely the point of using the word alleluia um yeah which is this idea of contemplation going beyond the here and now and lots of lots of chants in the middle ages that were added to other chants things called tropes um introductions to the gloria introductions to the sequence emphasize that whenever we're singing chant in the in the mass especially at those points of the alleluia the gloria and the sanctus that we are singing with the angels um and you know these elaborate melodies are the points that are are the points that we are supposed to be singing uh with them so i think uh, you know suggested to your to the listeners to this podcast is next time you hear a long alleluia don't look at your watch because <laughs> 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 the whole point is it's timeless um and it's supposed to take a long time um and it's supposed to transport you to the seventh heaven hopefully your um choir can do that for you if not Offer it up. <laughs> well, Matthew, that is absolutely tremendous. And and on, on that note, I, I think we can we can wrap this up. And I I, I hope very much that um, I will have the privilege of singing with you again before um, too much more time goes past. And even more so that you'll be able to uh, help us in our chant training activities in whatever form they they re-manifest themselves when there some degree of uh, normality returns if it if it ever does yes. um because um talking of of, of choirs that are, perhaps aren't as good as they they should be well <laughs> there's there's plenty of work to be done um and well the make, singers yeah the, the, the singing is going to be a long way off i think uh, at mass 
But I, I read a very good suggestion in the Catholic Herald this week that perhaps masses could have one cantor singing chant distanced from the rest of the congregation. I forget who the author was, but it was. <laughs> I thought that's a fantastic suggestion. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Think it might have been you. Me? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, in your, um, your dialogue. Happy to take credit for uh, a good idea, but that's, I, no, that was that was that was someone else. No, it is a good idea. It is a good idea, although. Um, it, 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 it's the science of these things is is still um, is still being investigated. In fact, I read something recently that, that that suggested that singing does not move the air more than about a meter away from the singer. Yeah, so, well, they found this with musical instruments as well that actually it's not that bad unless you're playing the flute, in which it's quite bad. But right. other instruments, even <laughs> so trumpets, <laughs> so but even which you know, but even trumpets. Um, so, so there may be cause for hope if we could get enough. If there are enough studies done, then perhaps you know we may be getting back to singing, singing something like this, sing, singing again um, together, which would be wonderful. And yes, I'd be, I'd be delighted to to help out with the uh, LMS. Thank you so much, Matthew, for what you've done already um, and your uh, discussion today, which I thought was really, really fantastic. Um, and as I say. Um, hope